0: randeep let me go to you first we just played the clip of justin trudeau on election night how do you justify this election which basically just got us back to where we started before the whole thing 600 million bucks what do you what do you say to canadians who say that this was an unnecessary election
1: well i think there's a pandemic i think people uh, needed to voice their concern and voice their uh electoral uh, right and and to, to see what kind of government they wanted if they chose to have a very similar type of government then so be it that's uh, that's the choice canadians made i think more choices for canadians uh, is usually better uh, people want uh, the ability to make that decision rather than uh, uh, governments making it always for them and in lower mainland uh, the liberals gained uh, three uh, uh four seats uh, that uh, that they didn't have before and people chose uh uh liberal mandates and and felt that the liberal government's doing a great job and from cloverdale uh langley city to the richmond ridings and uh uh hopefully vancouver granville as well
0: okay okay dan albus from the conservatives what do you say to that
2: well let's just bear in mind that afghanistan the pandemic the recovery all of these things that randeep was talking about could have been done in parliament we should have been focused on those things now here we are with a six hundred and ten billion or million dollar, pardon me, uh, cabinet shuffle. Uh, the prime minister took no accountability for his role in creating divisions in this country, uh, and I, I think he needs to be accountable for that.
0: Okay, what about the accountability for your leader, Mr. O'Toole? Do you still support him as the as the conservative leader? Do you think he should have another crack at it in another election?
2: Unlike Mr. Trudeau, who took not even a modicum of responsibility for his role in plunging us into this election, Mr. O'Toole said he was disappointed in his launching review. I believe that the people are never wrong, but we also have to remember that there are 338 different ridings and every uh, citizen votes according to how they think. So we'll wait for that review to happen. But I will say to Randeep's uh, remarks regarding seats in the Lower Mainland, we only know the Lower Mainland was going to be a uh, three-way knife fight between the NDP, the Liberals and the Conservatives. But they've lost three cabinet ministers. Uh, they've lost seats in Atlantic Canada, Ontario. Uh, and so they, they need to bear responsibility for that. Let's just remember, Mike, people were saying that there was, the polls were showing 40 percent higher uh, for the Liberals and less yeah. than 30 percent for us. And we ended up exactly where you said, it. We're roughly where we were in 2019. We're just all poor for
0: it. Okay, Peter Julian from the NDP, reelected in uh, New West Burnaby. Peter, I think we got you now. Can you hear me? Yes, yes, I can. Oh, thank thank goodness. Peter, your thoughts on the outcome of this election?
3: Uh, well, first off, I didn't meet a single person in New Westminster Burnaby who, who thought Mr. Trudeau <clears throat> pushing this election during a pandemic was a, was a smart idea, not just the the huge costs involved but but also the fact that uh, as as covid spread uh, the, the delta variant and and all of the other uh, problems became quite evident they they didn't see it as a responsible approach now uh, one one thing that is very clear is we had a low voter turnout particularly among younger voters yeah. that has an impact on on the results and i think the liberals uh, probably deliberately tried to to put this uh, the timing of the election at the, the worst possible time for students. Uh, Elections Canada didn't have campus uh, polls as well. But um, that being said, we're right back to the same parliament that could have been working over the last uh, last couple of months on, on resolving issues for people. Right. And uh, and I think Mr. Trudeau bears the blame for this irresponsible call.
0: Randeep Sarai, what do you say
1: to that? Well, first of all, Peter Julian and many of the NDP candidates, including Jagmeet Singh, had no problem campaigning for the provincial NDP during their election, which was uh, during a pandemic when no vaccines were administered. They had no problem uh, endorsing candidates, dancing, uh, uh, celebrating, as well as uh, door knocking and doing all the fun things that an election has. So I I really don't take any lessons from the NDP in regards to when and how the election. So... um, uh we had an election we asked the people of canada to to make their choice and uh and the Canadians made their choices and in some places they picked more liberals and other places they picked other parties but uh, that was there and i okay. take of real offense when he says that the uh, students were uh deliberately uh uh targeted not to vote this is an Elections canada decision we've made it uh more eligible more open to have it but unfortunately elections canada couldn't get their act together uh, to help, and, and they've apologized for that and taken responsibility.
0: Peter, Peter Julian. Uh, it, it's, it's it's very clear that, that,
3: that the Liberals, their responsibility for this. Now the, the question is, are they prepared to get back to work? I mean, the, the reality is there are so many concerns that people have across the country. Uh, how How quickly is Mr. Trudeau going to recall Parliament, or is he going to... Uh, try to l- delay that further There's, there are critical times now the, the delta variant is rising certainly wasn't the case last year we didn't see the increased case loads that we're seeing now and and uh we we see a, a federal government and mr trudeau that that doesn't seem to be taking responsibility and doesn't seem to be acting when we really need to move forward to help people hey.
0: Hey Peter, when you say it's not true what Randeep said there about the Jugmeet Singh campaigned for the provincial NDP in a pandemic election, yeah, that is true. I mean, I watched I watched Jugmeet Singh go on the campaign trail a year ago for the provincial NDP in a pandemic election. He said door
3: knocking. We were we were not door knocking. Oh. There were no new Democrats out on the doorsteps uh, during last year's pandemic. And the reality is, the caseloads weren't increasing as they were. This time around, uh, it wouldn't. There wouldn't have been a provincial election if we'd seen the rising case, caseload that um, we saw in the, in the days leading up to Mr. Trudeau calling the election, plus the uh, the fall of Kabul. I, it just. It. I think it leaves a bad taste in everybody's mouth when the yep. uh, prime minister seeks to to move his personal gain above the interests of the country.
0: Let me go back to Dan Albus for the Conservatives re-elected in the Okanagan. Dan, what are, your, what are the Conservatives' priorities here as we go forward in holding this Trudeau government to account in another minority parliament?
2: Well, we're going to need to work together to be able to deal with the pandemic. We, we need to see where this fourth wave is going. We also need to have a more serious discussion about uh, how we support Canadians and where we support, uh, because, again, some economies are open, some aren't. Uh, But, you know, one thing I I think we also need to bear in mind, Mr. Trudeau wanted a majority government uh, because he doesn't like the scrutiny a minority government has. So I I look forward to working with all members of Parliament, uh, you know, to be able to shed some light on some things that Mr. Trudeau just has tried to evade uh, accountability. He's even sued his own speaker, a liberal speaker, to try to deny the House of Commons its ability to order documents in regards to the Winnipeg Research Lab. So you know we're going to be doing our part to support Canadians, but we're also going to be making sure that we shine the light on Justin Trudeau because obviously he wanted, he saw that election yeah. uh, you know opening and decided to take it despite all the things that Peter has has said like Afghanistan hey, those issues. Hey Dan, we'll, we will be there.
0: Dan, do you think that this c- campaign for the Conservatives got thrown for a loop to a degree by some of the wedge issues that were pushed by Trudeau during this campaign, especially the issues around vaccinations i mean he constantly criticized Aaron o'toole for not requiring his own candidates to get vaccinated during this election campaign how, how do you defend that
2: so when we first started this campaign public health officials said do not politicize the vaccination issue even the united states joe biden did not politicize the vaccination issue we have seen more division more wedges pulled out you know, for Mr. Trudeau to try and save his sorry government. Uh, and he lost cabinet ministers on this. Okay, and the right, fact is, we have uh, more debt and more division I've ever seen. People should be, uh, we will hold him to account to try and bring some sense, uh, sensibility to this parliament.
0: Randeep Sarai from the Liberals, what do you say to that?
1: Well, I think it's it's the divisions that created by Erin O'Toole and the Conservatives uh, not giving a clear message to vaccinate. In fact, public health authorities were begging public figures and leaders of our community to help endorse uh, vaccination drives, uh, show that you're getting vaccinated, Show leadership in it. When you don't show leadership in it, you cause divisions, you cause frictions and, and uh, factions in society. And that's what Aaron O'Toole did. Uh, the same thing went with gun control flip flop, repealing assault rifles, banning assault rifles. I don't know what I'm going to do with assault rifles. This is the actions of the, of the conservative government. This is a conservative uh, leader. This is the type of actions they were doing that was causing division in the country. The same with climate. You know, their party votes uh, against climate change and, and ignores it. Leader puts something in and then leader backtracks on it. Like, these are the things. that. I think at, our, at least our party has been very clear in all of its mandates, has been okay. very direct and been uh, forthright to the public and uh, and stuck with it. Okay, and Dan,
0: Dan I know, back on it. I, 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 That's I know, a Dan, okay, I'm glad you got, I'm glad you got that <laughs> in. I, I, we're running so, out of time so, now. So. We're no, running out of time Just on the now.
2: vaccination, my leader stood yeah. by all the other leaders, uh, you know, before the English debate, and they did a joint video talking did, about he, vaccination. He didn't
1: stand by it to his own caucus members, his own r- candidates. That is ridiculous. That's I'm clear. vaccinated. And, and, and go, this is the kind of divisions that you guys are trying to, to Okay, gentlemen, gentlemen, homes gentlemen, homes, I'm gonna, I'm, so I'm gonna jump. Go to old folks' homes unvaccinated, putting their lives at risk and all the staff and there. Gentlemen, and I'm I think s- that's
0: deplorable. Peter, we got Peter, Julie, in 30 seconds, I'll give you the last word. Go ahead.
3: <laughs> well, can, Canadians are, are suffering right, right now. We've seen cutbacks in COVID support. Uh, we know with this Delta variant that the, there are increased health risks Uh, We all need to work together, and I hope that Mr. Trudeau uh, reconvenes Parliament so that we can start to get things done for people.
0: I hope they work together, too. Uh, Thank you, all three of you. Congratulations on all three of you being re-elected in your ridings. Peter Julian for the NDP, Randeep Sarai for the Liberals, Dan Albus for the Conservatives. Appreciate their time this morning.
4: It is indeed an honor to be here this morning as your new president. The B.C. Nurses Union is the strongest union in this province.
0: Okay, welcome back to the show. That is the voice of my next guest, Gail Dutay. Gail is the former president of the BC Nurses Union, uh, that was her acceptance speech back in 2015. She's now the past president of the union. Uh, this union uh, going through a lot of scrutiny right now over the issue of mandatory vaccination for nurses in our province. And I'm very pleased to welcome Gail to the show. Gail, thank you very much for coming on today.
4: Well, thank you very much. And thank you for that flashback in time.
0: Yeah, I thought that'd be a nice treat for you to go down memory lane there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, 2015, you were the, uh, made the, uh, appointed as the president of the union, Gail. You are now the past president of the nurses union. A it lot, was of, lot of,
4: 2014, actually.
0: 2014. Thank you. Yeah. There's a lot of focus on this union right now over the issue of mandatory vaccination for nurses. The union has come out opposed to that. They say that your nurses should have the right to reject the vaccine and continue to work in the healthcare system. What do you think of that position that the union has taken? Well, I know where
4: that position uh, comes from. And I was part of that position at one point in time. Uh, there's no question uh, that uh, that is the position that BCNU took during the flu vaccination and or, or flu vaccine. And uh, the compromise was that if you didn't have a flu vaccine, you masked, and you had to mask for anywhere from five to six months. And that's, That kind of worked well for the parties for a couple of years. Uh, But this is different. Uh, This is a global pandemic. And I think uh, positions and and leaders uh, need to adjust and change accordingly. I was interested to hear Rona Ambrose the other night on election night, uh, you know, be a little bit uh, critical of Aaron O'Toole saying that his judgment in the vaccine passport it cost him a lot of votes. And I, I was just listening to your previous uh, session there. And, you know, vaccines are going to be our way out of this pandemic. They, they yeah. truly are. And um, we're not out. In fact, we're stepping one foot back in. So I think we really need to push vaccinations at every opportunity. And that does include nurses.
0: Do you think that the union's position on this, rejecting mandatory vaccinations for, for their members is, is out of step with the current public health approaches that we're seeing from a lot of other frontline healthcare organizations, like notably the Canadian Medical Association and the Canadian Nurses Association. So these are the two major groups representing doctors and nurses across the whole country are calling for mandatory vaccination for frontline healthcare workers. And yet here you have the BC Nurses Union on the other side of that, on the opposite side. What are your thoughts on that?
4: Well, we play different roles. The union is an advocate for nurses. And the Canadian uh, Nursing Association is really made up of the associations which govern the uh, colleges across Canada. So very different roles. The college, uh, of course, protects patients. Um, and reports nurses. Uh, BCNU's position is, is one of advocacy for nurses. So they are quite different roles. I do know that, you know, not every doctor is vaccinated as well. Um, you know, I, I do believe that the vast majority of nurses are vaccinated. And that's excellent. And listening to Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday, the, you know, there seems to be some holdout, holdouts. A large portion of nurses are female, although we're making great strides in male nursing because it's a wonderful profession. And, uh, you know, a, a livelihood. You can make a good wage. But a lot of nurses are of childbearing years. Uh, they're breastfeeding. That, I know, plays a part into the hesitancy on vaccinations. And let's face it, some are just anti-vax, as there are anti-vax doctors. I, I know a few of them. So, you know, it is about education, I really do believe. I know that uh, BCNU is going through a leadership issue right now, and uh, there's great leaders on their executive, and they will step up. And Amon Gruel is one of them, and I believe that she'll be meeting uh, with people, with the nurses, and, and, you know, look at this issue closer. I really think that they, they do need to.
0: Okay, well, speaking of Amon Karul, who is the vice president of the union, and and she's been the voice of this union right now, let me play a a clip of her speaking on this issue, and then I'll get your thoughts on it. So here's the vice president of the BC Nurses Union uh, making the case for why nurses should be able to reject getting the vaccine for any reason. Have a listen.
5: It's a human right to make your own choice. Uh, We still stand by that... uh everyone should be vaccinated and we strongly encourage everyone to get educated and uh, get the vaccine. But there will be some that don't. What we've been hearing is um, from these educated people that uh, they just don't have enough science for their personal choice.
0: Okay. I was a little surprised to hear the vice president of the union say that there are some educated nurses who are not really satisfied with the science on the vaccine. What do you think of the union's position on that?
4: Well, I think she's probably right that there are some nurses uh, who think that way. But when you're in a union, you act on behalf of the collective and uh, you're not going to please everybody 100 percent of the time. And as I say, the vast majority of nurses are vaccinated. I think that they, the ones that aren't, have some particular reasons, such as breastfeeding or or what one of them. But you know, and there are some anti-vaxxers, and those are not the people that you should be representing right now. You should be representing. Uh, the nurses across the province who believe in science and believe in vaccination. You should be representing the patients who put their trust right. in the hospital system and the healthcare system. And so I have a great deal of respect for Aman and uh, be happy to chat with her on this issue. Um, I know that they're going through with the resignation of Christine Sorensen. Aman will now be the president for a period of time. And so uh, it's it will be a step forward and they have strong leaders there right now and i know that i'm hoping that they'll make a decision on this very soon because as i say we are going back we are taking backward steps in this pandemic and we cannot let that happen as nurses
0: speaking to gail dute the former president of the bc nurses union anytime i have talked to a labor leader in british columbia gail over past couple of decades they've always told me that job one for any union the highest priority is the health and safety of their members. And I just wonder if what you think about this position that unions taking that you, that nurses should be allowed to to reject taking the vaccine and continue to work. How is that putting the health and safety of your own people forward? I mean, do you think that's a contradiction because this is not only about protecting vulnerable patients in a hospital setting, but it's also about protecting your coworkers, isn't it? And requiring people to get vaccinated.
4: Yes, um, the health and safety of, of the membership is uh, first and foremost. Yeah. So yes, I agree. I, I mean, I'm a Trekkie. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, and that right. that would right. be the position that that's the position that I take on this issue. Uh, and it does mean sometimes biting the bullet, but uh, nurses who are in this health care system and are exhausted. I might add, I hear from a lot. They are working sixteen-hour shifts. Seven, I, I spoke with somebody the other day that was doing her eight 12 hour shift in a row uh, so I understand the stress and strain they're under and they they may want to just you know have a little independence in their thought unfortunately the vaccine is not an area where they where they should and so um, mm. I do believe that the health and safety of the members and the public because the bc nurses uh, work with the public every single day in the community in the hospitals in public health care which are all three areas uh branches of nursing that are going full tilt right now so you know i i just think that uh the nurses will make their own decision but the union's job is to guide them and that
0: guidance needs to come forward all right, it's time for Baldry's B, Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. Morning, Keith. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing good, and I just uh, finished talking to Gail Dutey. I heard that. The former president of the BC Nurses Union, speaking out against the nurses' pol- the current policy of the union there, opposed to mandatory vaccination for nurses. So she said she's a Star Trek fan, and, and like Spock <laughs> said... The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. So the union should get with the program yeah. here and get behind well, mandatory vaccination. It doesn't look like it's going to happen.
6: Her successor, Christine Sorensen, resigned. In my understanding she resigned. She didn't want to take on the executive. She, she's a former public health nurse. She supports vaccinations, the vaccination mandate. Gail Dutte told you that she was opposed to the flu vaccine mandate, right. if you recall. She yeah. fought that. But she says there's a different, much more serious situation. So- Uh, Essentially, the BC Nurses Union leadership has always been um, controversial, to say the least, going back years more than any other union. They've had leadership challenges, leadership fights, staff turnover. They've been kicked out of the BC Federation of Labor, kicked out of Canadian Labor Congress for raiding the Hospital Employees Union. And now you've got this strange situation where the vast majority of the membership have been vaccinated uh, on their own. Just like any other, I mean, we're approaching 90% of the population with, with one dose. We're 87% right now. And you got to figure that's probably even higher amongst nurses because they have scientific training.
0: Well, I wonder about the vaccination rate for nurses because there's some conflicting numbers out there. Like the Nurses Union at one point suggested that maybe only 80% of nurses had been vaccinated. And that's why they were saying, oh, the healthcare system could crash if you like fire I don't, 20%. I don't, know where, of I don't know where they're getting that. Yeah. I, I mean, there's been higher estimates as well. The government, I, I believe, knows who's vaccinated and who's not, because I know that they had done, they had asked nurses and other healthcare workers to disclose their vaccination at, status at
6: the very front too. They were yeah. at the head of the queue at the very beginning. So and now it is, you know, it's going to be required to be um, to be vaccinated if you want to work in the healthcare system. Yeah, and again, I think the nurses' union uh, executive is offside here. When you got Christine Sorensen and Gail Dutay, two former presidents basically saying the executive is wrong, That that's a problem.
0: Well, we'll see what happens. I mean, this kicks in next month when those mandatory vaccination rules become applicable, mm-hmm. and we'll see if there is a problem. I mean, Bonnie Henry yesterday was asked about this, and was she worried about losing a ton of nurses? And she said no. no. She didn't seem to be too worried about it.
6: Well, you know, everybody take a step back. Are you going to actually give up a very well-paying, good benefits job that you've trained your whole life and aspire to be in for forever because yeah. you've somehow read something on the internet that the vaccine... vaccine... Vaccine is not safe or something.
0: I think. Really, uh, very few people are going to do that. Okay, we'll see what happens here. I-, I was really grateful to Gail Dute speaking out like that because it takes courage. It takes some, her. It takes some guts to speak out against your own union. Like Judy from Langley, remember Judy, the sure. nurse, forty-year nurse from Langley, speaking out yeah. last week. Yeah, Adrian Dick Interesting news conference yesterday with Health Minister Adrian Dixon uh, focused mm-hmm. on uh, the current situation in Northern British Columbia. Let's have a listen to the Health Minister here yesterday talking about the need for get the vaccination rates up in the north. We expect the pressure on critical care in the north will continue until vaccination rates go up and cases and hospitalizations go down. We need to reduce pressure on the north. Okay, what jumped out at you yesterday? Well, just the
6: continuing concern about the north. I've been reporting on the northern health situation for some time now. Uh, It's a combination of low vaccination rates and now a sudden surge in hospitalizations and ICU numbers. In an area with low population population, the Delta variant is spreading very quickly, and there's not a lot of hospital beds, and there's not a lot of ICU beds out there. That's why 12 patients were transferred in the last few days. Nine of them with COVID-19 had to be moved down to the Metro Vancouver and Vancouver Island. That puts a real strain on families in the north. You can just imagine if you, if you live in the north in Prince George or Dawson Creek, and suddenly your family member who's in ICU has to be flown down to Vancouver or Victoria, How are you going to visit? Well, you're not going to visit them if they're in the ICU, but you can't provide any support for them, and that's a very serious situation.
0: What are the vaccination rates up there right now? Unfortunately,
6: it's very low in in some some, uh, locations. Vanderhoof, uh, Enderby, Dawson Creek, all below 60%. Hmm. Fort St. John is about 64%, I believe. Uh, Rural Prince George is very low. So we're talking about the Peace River, and part just outside of Prince George is the problem areas. The Northwest, uh, which is, you know, Quinnell, or no, sorry, not Quinnell, Terrace, uh, Kitimat, Prince Rupert, Haida Gwaii, very high vaccination rates. So it's, when you talk about the North, we're talking about the Northeast, Peace River, and outside of Prince George. Low vaccination numbers, high case numbers, high hospitalizations, high ICUs, not a lot of beds. Right. And, and the other critical thing up there, it's not so much the beds. It's the staff. We don't have enough critical care nurses in the north to really um, deal with the situation. It's similar, not quite as, well, not nearly as bad, but still approaching what's happening in Alberta. Alberta is a basket case. Yeah, really scary numbers
0: out of Alberta yesterday.
6: Terrible. And it's not just beds uh, situation, it's staff. You need, When you're in intensive care, it's not like you're in a ward with 40 people and one nurse. You're in there, with you're getting treatment one on one or one on two, 24 7. And we don't have the staff to, to really
0: if they uh, if they have a critical care a shortage of critical care nurses up in these low vaccination areas. Does that not circle back to the mandatory vaccination rule where the unions were warning? Like, look, if you require like I wonder how many of those critical care nurses are vaccinated. Well, I, mean, I assume like most of them, if not all of them, hopefully
6: yeah, I, I have no reason to doubt. The fact that that them being professionals and being scientists and being medical people, they're vaccinated. I, mm-hmm. I really think there's very few people in the healthcare system who are, aren't uh, vaccinated.
0: Okay, let's talk about vaccinations um, becoming available for younger children. And uh, Dr. Bonnie yep. Henry was asked about this yesterday. Let's have a listen.
7: Our immunization teams across the province are actively preparing to be able to offer this vaccine as if and when Health Canada approves it for use here in Canada, and it becomes available.
0: Okay, how quickly is this coming, do you think? Uh,
6: Soon, October, November is the expectation for for 6 to 11-year-olds to be vaccinated. Uh, we got enough vaccines to to do this. Um, this Pfizer and Moderna have, are completing. They've either completed their clinical trials or they're near the end of their clinical trials. It was supposed to be sometime in September. They're wrapping up. They're testing in the United States. Uh, thousands of of kids under the age of uh, twelve have been vaccinated down there, and the, so far the the uh, data is saying this is safe. This is good. Ah, uh, you have to be careful with vaccinating younger children. Their immune systems aren't aren't built up enough uh, as as older older people. But right now, it's encouraging. So the expectation is, it hasn't been official, and you heard Dr. Henry say health Canada has to sign off on this. Uh, but all signs are pointing to October, November for getting kids 6 to 11 immunized.
0: Okay, watching that one very closely. You and I were talking off air how we're both uh, big Muhammad Ali fans. Mm-hmm. So we've both been enjoying the new PBS documentary series by the great documentary filmmaker Ken Burns. Ken Burns. And I think it was, uh, was it part three last night? I watched yeah. I watched the one last night. It was awesome. Oh, it was the Ali Frazier
6: fight of 71, I think. Madison the, Square the, Garden. His great comeback. It was oh, uh, an epic, epic yeah. uh, episode by Ken Burns. Brings back a lot of memories. Also just reinforces um, this, the, the fact that Muhammad Ali transcended boxing. He was a civil rights figure. He was a social mover uh, at the time. And it was, uh, again, I recommend that people watch it tonight, part four.
0: Yeah, it really is amazing. I mean, he's been called uh, the greatest athlete of the 20th century, which I think is kind of hands-down easy call. Mm-hmm. Maybe the most famous person of the 20th, or most beloved person of the 20th century he's been called, Ali. I loved him. I thought he was awesome, too. And this is a great, a great influ- documentary series. Most influential sports
6: figure by far yeah. in history, I would think. Babe Ruth is up there as well, but I think Muhammad Ali, because of his uh, civil rights advocacy taking on the Vietnam War. Uh, He transcended sports, he transcended boxing, and just a pivotal figure of the 20th century. It's a great documentary.
0: It really is. One of the things I really enjoyed about it, too, is the quality of some of the video. Like They've got some incredible historic footage and You know, it's not like the high definition footage of today, but it's some of the best I've seen. Like some of the fight footage there of, you know, Ali Frazier, I was like, I was looking at it last night and it was going, wow, that looks awesome. Like really, really good quality video. The
6: Ali Frazier stuff, um, you know, uh,
0: boxing peaked with Ali, and uh, I I don't think we're ever going to go back to those days. You want to listen to a little Muhammad Ali here? Okay, here he is. Here's Ali.
6: I done something new for this
1: fight. I'd have wrestled with an alligator. That's right. I have wrestled with a alligator. I done tussled with a whale. I done handcuffed lightning, throw thunder in jail. That's bad. Only last week I murdered a rock, injured a stone, Hospitalize a brick.
6: I'm so mean I make medicine sick.
0: <laughs> I think that was before his fight with Ken Norton in the '70s, but. Yeah. Yeah, there was no one else like him.
6: It was Warts and all in this documentary. I mean, it's not yeah. uh, it's not everything uh, haloed about Ellie. His treatment of Joe Frazier was quite shabby. Oh yeah, quite shabby and quite uh, mean, demeaning, cruel. Yeah, and uh, the way he taunted him mercilessly. Uh, again, if it just brought about some troubling aspects, of it, but it was all part of his show, showmanship. Yeah, you know, his publicity shtick. Uh, but very good documentary.
0: All right, welcome back to the show. It's Baldry's B. Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. Just going back to the situation in northern British Columbia, the focus of the uh, of the news conference yesterday, it was interesting to hear Dr. Bonnie Henry talk about the number of, uh, of pregnant women who are in uh, ICU, right? And just encouraging people, that like, you know, if, if you are pregnant and you're nursing, like, you, you can still take the vaccine. Right? Yeah,
6: so the message from her yesterday, if you're pregnant, get vaccinated. So early on in the, in the vaccination rollout, uh because pregnant women were not part of the clinical trials with Pfizer and Moderna and AstraZeneca there was people saying oh you shouldn't get vaccinated if you're pregnant since then we've basically the world is a clinical trial we've had you know billions of people vaccinated uh and tens of thousands of pregnant women have been vaccinated the yeah. data shows it is overwhelmingly positive to get vaccinated if you're a pregnant woman or if you're thinking of getting pregnant the society of um uh, gynecologists and obstetricians is recommending you get vaccinated so if you're a pregnant woman you have an obstetrician you have a gynecologist and you follow their advice on everything
7: yeah Um, right
6: yeah so you do you follow their advice and you follow their their and so the the guidance now and the advice is to get vaccinated and that was the message dr henry had yesterday she went out of her way she said because she's a concerned people just like whether it's uh, pregnant women or other people in other health situations are getting misleading information from the internet, from social media, from bogus uh, sources spread by the anti-vaxxers, disinformation, and and convincing people not to get vaccinated in certain situations. Uh, and she says basically go to credible sources, and that includes your own personal physician. Your own personal obstetrician and gynecologist get vaccinated if you're pregnant.
0: Yeah, I mean it's really tragic to think of uh, you know an expecting mom and uh, ending up in ICU. I mean mm-hmm. that, that is a terrible situation. So that that's a key concern as well. Just going back to the situation in Alberta that we briefly talked about before uh, with the numbers there, we saw Jason Kenney this week shuffle his cabinet, removed his health minister, put a new dramatic new health minister news in conference
6: there. yesterday. Jason Kenney uh, shuffling his uh, cabinet, firing his health minister, or sh- yeah. putting him into labor. Bringing in someone new. He's under fire. Uh, he's unpopular. Today there's a pivotal caucus meeting of, of the conservatives there. Uh, a number of people are reporting that there's going to be requests for him to resign. You and I have covered enough of these situations to know it's very hard to remove a leader who doesn't want to go. It's going yeah. to, I don't expect Jason Kennedy to leave there. He, he had all the, earmarks yesterday of someone who's going to stay as leader. He's got a a, part of his caucus are basically anti-vax or uh, don't want any restrictions. He tried to turn the tables yesterday and say, I'm not leaving because of people who are anti-vaccine, anti-restrictions, even though he's been criticized for being too lax, for lifting the restrictions too early, for ignoring science. He's trying to turn around and say, I'm not going to give in to the anti-vaxxers, which is a, a neat little trick. But I, again, having covered a number of leaders who've been in really serious trouble with their caucuses, it takes a lot to remove them.
0: Yeah, it is um, unusual to see a politician sort of go willingly. Like I, I vividly remember going down to the press theater in the legislature, and I know you were there that day too, and Mike Harcourt walked yeah. in and, and resigned. And it was a, a big surprise. And he had had a discussion with some of the key labor leaders in British Columbia that kind of convinced him to resign. And he could have stuck him remo- up. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a guy who could have fought. But then you think about a guy like, you know, Gordon Bill, Campbell or Glenn, Van Glenn Clark or the Zan. It took three years to remove
6: Bill Vanners. He, <laughs> he got in trouble very early and his caucus wanted him out yeah. uh, by increasingly large numbers. And I remember vividly covering that. It took a long time to finally get him to resign uh glenn Clark took uh you know he had that uh the
0: mounties visited his house yeah. with our cameras in tow he didn't want to quit and uh, no. he eventually did but you know months a, later a lot of these guys they're hardwired to not to quit i mean they're hardwired to fight and, and to and to yeah. fight for every every inch of turf they can get and a guy like kenny to me is not a guy who is going to go easily no for no. sure.
6: No, I, I, and again, yesterday, uh, Bravura uh, performance, I really gave every indication he intends to stick this out. He's yeah. not going to give in. Um, and again, it's very hard to remove someone. When you're the premier, you have, you basically hold all the cards. Yeah. The minute you leave, you lose all your cards and uh, you, you weaken yourself considerably. So I don't see him giving in. Uh, we've seen, uh, Bill Vanderzam, Mike Harcourt, Glenn Clark, Gordon Campbell, Christy Clark was in Christy, trouble yeah, before yeah. T- the 2013 election, and a lot of people thought she was going to be forced out. She stuck it out, Yes, uh, defied her, her, her caucus critics, and won the 2013 election, right. and those critics were gone after that. <laughs> so, you know, the leader can, uh, they again, they hold all the cards. I just, the caucus meeting is today in Alberta. In Edmonton, it's going to be interesting to see the outcome. But I'd be very surprised if Kenny. Okay, just
0: just a minute left. I mean, he's obviously in a difficult spot, and the numbers that came out of the ICU and number of deaths and cases in Alberta really troubling. They had earlier, 29
6: people that died yesterday. Yeah,
0: that's terrible, brutal. And the number of people in ICU and hospital is really, really more than, serious More than 250, almost yeah. 1,000 people in hospital. I mean, they wow. are very close to being overwhelmed. They're now getting to the point
6: of having to triage even kids for treatment. It's very troubling. With having, they're very much resembling what we're seeing in a number of American states, particularly in the South, where the numbers are just simply overwhelming them. And it's not just beds and equipment. It's resources. It's human resources.
0: Keith thanks for coming in. Dr. Keith Baldry there, Baldry's Beat. Thanks a lot for your uh, your calls. Back to the show. Let's talk about COVID-19 in BC schools and the British Columbia now reversing course on the system for notifying parents about COVID exposures at public schools. This was after provincial health officer Dr. Bonnie Henry had earlier said that notifying parents about COVID cases in schools was causing families too much anxiety. Uh, there was some pushback and criticism on that earlier. I've got kids in public school. I do recall getting a letter like this a couple of times in the last school year about a COVID exposure at my kids' school. It didn't really cause me a lot of anxiety. I actually, as a parent, I'd like to know. More information to me is better than than none. Uh, but they did decide to go with a, uh, a less notification to parents because of the anxiety it was causing until yesterday when dr bonnie henry kind of reversing course on this yesterday have a listen to what she had to say
7: initially it was my understanding that there was a a level of anxiety from the way that we had uh, given um, broad school notifications last year Um, but um, we hear from parents across the province i hear from educators and our teams have uh, recognized that parents do need an authoritative source to go to have an understanding of what's happening at their children's schools
0: okay dr bonnie henry there yesterday let's discuss now with my guest elizabeth costa she's a concerned parent in victoria i'm very pleased to welcome her elizabeth thanks for coming on today hi good morning okay elizabeth can you tell me the story of what happened to you and, and your family with the covid exposure at school briefly what what happened there
5: Absolutely. September 8th, um, second day of school, my son developed symptoms. I immediately isolated with him. Uh, end of the evening or beginning of the evening, I had the same symptoms. Uh, I alerted the school, uh, the principal and the teacher. Um, as soon as we got a positive test for my son, September 10th, I again informed the school. The school repeated what they had told me previously, which is, we have to wait for public health. We may not have to tell anyone. Um, September thirteenth, wow. uh, the letter from the the island health was sent uh, via the principal to the school community, indicating that there had been an exposure to COVID at the whole middle school. Um, that it was low risk contagion, still referring to droplets, um, tracing started being done on September 13th. I informed uh, all the children that were in very close proximity to my child with no masks, eating, playing, sharing the same utensils and everything, since they were looking for droplet exposures. Only one out of 16 or more children were told to isolate, and that child did not have symptoms.
0: Okay, I'm sorry this is uh, you and your family have gone through this, Elizabeth. Would, would you say that um, bottom line is that you, you felt the notification system at the school did, did not work or it failed your family? I mean, how would you describe it?
5: It failed everyone. I, yeah. I informed my son's teacher. She had no clue. I informed other parents. They had no clue. On September 10th, as soon as I got the positive results for my son, I informed as many people as I had contact for. My son, of course, he's 10. He thinks everyone past 20 is old. He told me his teacher was old, so I was quite concerned for her health and safety. She was one of the very first people I wrote to. She had no idea.
0: What do you think about the announcement yesterday that there will be more notification?
5: I'm not doing a little happy dance yet. I don't know what timely means. For Dr. Henry. I don't know what less intrusive means for Dr. Henry. And I don't, I have no idea what sustainable means. I want to get notices like we do for LICE, exactly the same. There's been an exposure in the classroom. Your child is at high risk. Immediately go do a test. And I want us all to have our rapid tests at home ready to go.
0: Elizabeth, thank you for sharing your story today. I, I hope you and your family uh, have a, a full recovery uh, from you. from COVID, and I appreciate your coming on today. That's Elizabeth Costa there telling the story of her son uh, coming down with COVID. She got COVID too and not happy with the, expo- the the notification system at her son's school. So Mike McCullough is a parents' advocate. He uh, works with Safe Schools Coalition BC. Mike, thanks for coming on again. Hey, Mike, thanks. Okay, what were your concerns before the announcement yesterday that the government was, or Bonnie Henry was now changing this notification system around COVID in schools? What was your concern initially when they stopped sending out those notification letters?
8: Well, the main thing, Mike, I'd say is that this is a novel pathogen, and it has the propensity to, to maim and kill people. That includes our children at some level. And so I believe that there is a duty to inform under Section 25 of the Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act here. And so when the government decided to merely inform individuals they deemed at risk, they were leaving a huge hole there for the greater community at large.
0: Right. What did you think of the announcement yesterday that notifications will begin again?
8: That's a good first step. We're really pleased by that, and we think our advocacy may have played a part in that. We're not sure. They haven't really told us about that. We have had contact back from some of our volunteers. We're not yet celebrating, but we see this as a welcome first step. You know, We have 40 volunteers who have signed up to help with it so so far. We are looking for more. Uh, Approximately just over half of those have already filed access information requests. And if you do want to help, if you know anybody, head over to kidsbeforecovid.com. you find our latest blog post there on the topic and uh, get in touch with us.
0: How is this system going to work now? I listened carefully to what Dr. Henry had to say about this yesterday, and she said they're going to bring in a system where schools receive timely notification. She called it, she said it would be less intrusive and more sustainable in the ways that parents get, get this information. What does that mean? I don't know. There's, uh, there's more to know about.
8: There's more to find out about this. I know that last year the government did sort of download a lot of the responsibility onto school administrators, and in some cases admin were spending quite a bit of time sending off these letters. So I think the sustainable aspect of it might be to maybe do a wider, uh, more granular uh, process. Like if you go to check out what Ontario is doing, look at Seattle, many other jurisdictions around the world, there's a level of granularity provided in these places. Is actually quite staggering compared to the scraps of information we're getting in D.C. You know, we're relying on volunteers who last year we're, were compiling and collating all of these different notifications that were being sent in from individuals from these various schools and further control this year with just an individual level getting these notifications. So we really don't know what the the new system is going to look like yet. And that's why we're still proceeding with our... Uh, freedom of information requests that we're we're, uh, filing with the government. So, again, uh, we're really uh, looking for more.
0: How do they do it in Seattle?
8: Oh, it's beautiful. They've got a a website. Um, The dashboard there has little dots that show you every little spot in the city that uh, has exposures at every single school, at every single district, and how many uh, exposures are known. So we would love to see something in line with what we're seeing in uh, jurisdictions like Seattle.
0: Right. Speaking of Mike McCullough, Safe Schools Coalition, B.C., Mike, how many COVID exposures have there been in schools? Do we know at this point? There's really no way to say. And the way that
8: uh, testing is sort of set up in B.C., it may be really hard to find out uh, how many actual COVID cases there have been with children as well. Because it can be difficult for people in certain areas of the metro area or certain areas of the the province as a whole to get down to testing sites when there's fewer testing sites. So really it becomes like a socioeconomic thing where unless you have wheels and you can get down to a testing site, you may not be able to get a test. Um, So this is something that we need to get uh, pushing for next is further testing, perhaps even widened rapid testing in each of the schools perhaps there's better ways of, of doing this there's more way to surveil this and we yeah. want to see
0: more okay let me play another clip from dr bonnie henry and her this is uh bonnie henry speaking on this topic yesterday uh, phil if you got the second clip on your rundown there and here is dr henry uh, speaking yesterday about how you will be contacted if your kid has been exposed to covid in a school is bonnie henry speaking yesterday
7: if your child has COVID, if your child has been exposed to somebody with COVID in a school system, you will be notified. It does take time to follow up on each individual case, and that sometimes uh, can be uh, take longer than you, you expect, but you will be notified. And public health teams are prioritizing our schools because we know how important it is to make sure that children are safely in schools.
0: Okay, Mike McCullough, does that reassure you at all?
8: No, I mean we listened uh just a moment ago to Elizabeth there your previous caller yeah. and I think it was September 8th to September 13th. You know, that doesn't really sound judicious or really quick to me, especially when that's basically beyond the incubation time of this disease. So, it's got to be better than that, Mike.
0: Yeah, when earlier we were told there was this was kind of a surprise announcement earlier from Dr. Bonnie Henry when they announced that they were going to stop sending out those school-wide notification letters of his, of a school exposure and just as a parent myself I remember getting a couple of those type of letters from my own kids high school uh, last school year and that did not cause me a, a lot of anxiety really I yeah. mean for me as a parent it was more like okay I know what the reality is. I know what the situation is here. And for me, it was just more like an opportunity to kind of double down and and talk to my son about the importance of following the rules, make sure you're washing your hands, keep your mask on and stuff. So it didn't really cause me a lot of anxiety as a parent. So it kind of surprised me when I heard, you know, authorities saying, well, these letters are causing people anxiety. I mean, what did you think about that when they said this, you know, People were too worried or anxious about these letters.
8: I don't buy it. Personally, I think that this is a a way of saying, well, we're going to control the information and try to keep everything on the rails with the plan as it is, rather than to really direct more resources to stopping the spread of this virus. We have uh, an opportunity here to be the best in the world. I want to see more notification, less information is actually more anxiety-provoking than more Uh, information.
0: Yeah, that's that's the kind of way I looked at it, too. We have seen like volunteer organizations like the one that you're active with or the COVID Tracker Facebook page with parents that are just on a volunteer basis trying to share the information among themselves. What has that been like over the first couple of weeks of of the school year when these notification letters were stopped and the effort to try and tell parents what was going on? What was going on in like, like on that Facebook page?
8: I'm not affiliated with the BC school COVID tracker, but I am admiring what they are doing. I think they're phenomenal and they've played no small part in helping get this changed, I believe. And uh, I think that within our own organization, we had consulted with freedom of information lawyers and people who are very knowledgeable with how to get the government to listen to your concerns. Um, And so that's where our project sprung out of. Once we decided to go public with it two days ago, I put out a small blog post. It was shared instantly and we more than doubled our volunteers. So there's absolutely a volunteer or rather an appetite here for people to hold the government to account to ensure that we do get more notification and so we can really know what's going on in our kids schools
0: mike thank you for coming on today appreciate it thanks mike let's talk about that long-awaited skytrain expansion in surrey all the way out to langley the headline today surrey to langley skytrain will not be up and running until 2028 according to a new report Uh, being sent to TransLink's Board of Directors. This brought a response yesterday from Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum, put out a statement yesterday saying he's frustrated with delays. He says it's disconcerting. He says it's been close to 30 years since the last rapid transit expansion in the city of Surrey. Let's discuss now with my guest, BC Transportation Minister Rob Fleming, and I'm pleased he could join us again. Minister, thank you for coming on.
9: Well, thanks for having me, Mike.
0: Okay, I know that you think there's some confusion out here about this story, yeah. that it's not really a delay. Uh, originally, yeah. though, I mean, weren't we originally told it was 2025 was the completion targeted completion date for this project, or no?
9: I'm not quite sure where that date comes from, but there's been a lot of recent history that's changed things. First of all, in 2018, uh, Mayor McCallum was elected mayor, uh, completely rejected the plan for uh, LRT uh, in yeah. In Surrey and and uh, and reordered uh, the project to be SkyTrain uh, only to Fleetwood, seven kilometers, uh, and to take all the money that TransLink had allocated from LRT and put it into that project. And we had no objections with that because this project was going to be led by TransLink. That's uh, the agreement we came on the regional investment plan that the province would be the lead agency build and then amortize the Broadway subway line, which, by the way, broke ground last year and is subject to be completed in 2025. And TransLink would be the lead agency on this. And if there is a project we can point to that had some COVID delay, it's this one. And it's because TransLink ridership, parking taxes, gas taxes, everything collapsed. Uh, They had a, a fiscal crisis to address, and we addressed that with uh, restart funding between ourselves and the federal government 675 million to stabilize that and coming out of covid we decided that you know what TransLink is not going to be able to lead this project so to get it back on track it's now a provincial project but we wanted to maximize the federal contribution and, and we also wanted to make phase one and phase two to langley instead of having it as a phase project make it one project so in actual fact instead of the completion date being 2030 in Langley, it's not going to be 2028. So we've accelerated this to the greatest degree possible. We've taken over the project, recognizing the fiscal uncertainty that TransLink uh, faces and we've maximized the uh, federal contribution because don't forget it was only earlier this year, February, 2021, that the federal government, the Trudeau government announced the creation of the quote unquote permanent transit fund. So this is the first project that I'm aware of that is accessing that new federal fund in British Columbia. Right.
0: Oh okay. So you're saying that, you know, the original the project has gotten bigger, like the the, the route has gotten there, yeah. has gotten longer, right? Like originally yeah. there was talk about okay they can build they could build SkyTrain out to Fleetwood. Fleetwood, yeah. Now we're going to go all the way to Langley. I mean, was the Fleetwood line, is that where the 2025 date came in? Is that they would hope to have that built out to Fleetwood by 2025? But now you're building building a longer project, and that's why it's going to take longer?
9: Is that fair? I think that date comes from a 2018 document that is a TransLink document, not a provincial document. So this is now a provincial project. As I just said, a lot has changed in the last 18 months during COVID. TransLink's financial position meant they could no longer lead the project. We picked up the pieces there. Uh, we're working to accelerate it. We only had an announcement on this in July uh, because that was when we secured federal funding. As soon as we'd secured a, a positive result with the federal government, we pulled the trigger on beginning this project. And Mayor McCallum, uh, to his credit, has begun some of the pre-works on this project already, uh, Highway 7 widening, uh, relocating some utility corridors. So uh, we're, by going out and making this a one-phase project, which more than doubles the length, so it goes from seven kilometres to over 16 uh, adding new stations, uh, connecting through both Langley Township and uh, and the city of Langley. Uh, obviously, it's a bigger project, but it, it gets into the Fraser Valley and starts to shape the growth that we know is going to come. That's where homes are going to be built, and we want to have transit-oriented development be the future of that right. part of Surrey and, uh, and the Fraser Valley. So it's a fantastic okay. project, and it really actually is being accelerated. As I mentioned, Langley was not going to be part of this until 2030. Now it's 2028.
0: Okay, 2028 is is now the target date to have this project up and running. Skytrain to Langley, yeah. right? So that that is the target right now, 2028. The price tag for this project, three point nine five billion, is that the current estimate?
9: That's correct. And if we yeah. kept with the phased model, it would have been over four point five billion. So the one thing when you go out to one construction firm and build it as a continuous project uh, instead of breaking it up into two projects uh that's where you save time and that's where you save money a half a billion in this case it's 14 percent cheaper by doing it as a consolidated project as opposed to a phase project
0: okay speaking to bc transportation minister rob fleming about the SkyTrain project in in surrey the federal government a partner here you mentioned that in july the federal government committed up to 1.3 billion billion dollars for this project is that money secure is that money in the bank
9: that money secured because they've approved the design and the uh, oversight, or so the, the the key features of the project. So the the concept, the design, uh, the business case to Fleetwood, the business case to Langley is is being worked on right now. But yeah, that's a that's a secure contribution from the federal government.
0: Okay, what would you say right now? I mean, there are a number of projects underway, a number of projects under consideration. We've talked about the Massey Tunnel project recently, for example. In in your mind, like as the transportation minister, what is job one right now? Like, what is the highest transportation priority in the region for you right now?
9: Well, uh, first of all, the region is in the middle of putting out another ten-year regional transportation plan, so we're going to be respectful of those priorities. Some of them are known. Uh, obviously, the federal government announced the same at the same time as the Surrey Langley SkyTrain that they want to look potentially at phasing um, the Broadway subway extension to Arbutus to go from Arbutus to UBC. Uh, there will be other regional priorities. Uh, we gave an extension to the TransLink Mayor's Council because of COVID. It was originally due in 2020, and, and we will have that in a few months in the spring of 2022. So there's there's lots of regional priorities, but Massey has been a, a longstanding one. And the mayors of Delta and Richmond uh, wanted to hit pause, wanted to look at a a different type of technology, wanted to work with First Nations rights holders and have that business case developed. So we actioned that uh, actually during the federal writ period because the business case was ready and we'd had a, a positive federal indication that They were supportive of this. They recognize it's a nationally significant trade corridor. So job one for me is uh, when the cabinet is selected and and the federal government is up and running again is to revisit those discussions and seek contributions on a number of other projects that are all over the province. We have some disaster relief to rebuild our highway infrastructure in the Caribou. We've had an opportunity to talk to the federal minister uh, about that. But there are are projects all over the province, including uh, fully electric marine battery uh, ferry fleets, to decarbonize uh, the Coastal Marine Service.
0: Okay, Minister, we just got a minute left. You recently announced a new eight lane tunnel to replace the currently clogged and congested George Massey Tunnel under the Fraser River. Do you, a lot of people were surprised going with this tunnel project are are you satisfied that i i just wonder if there's going to be a huge environmental fight over this project to build a an, another tunnel under that river are you confident that this thing is going to be able to get to get built without a big environmental hold up you just got 30 seconds here
9: i am confident because we have a very robust environmental assessment process and also the business case had five different environmental impact studies that will feed into the environmental assessment process so A tremendous amount of uh, the environmental challenges have been identified, early mitigation strategies, and we're going to work with the Musqueam and Sawas and other First Nations that are rights holders there, and and, uh, they were at that announcement with us.
0: Thanks for taking the time today. appreciate it. Well, thank you so
3: much, Mike.